Hello and welcome to Prism of the Past, a semi-weekly series all about historical events, people, and situations from the fascinating to the forgotten. I'm the Illuminati, and today we're going to be talking about Marilyn Monroe. I'm sure many of you know she was an absolute icon during the 50s, but today I wanted to explore what it is that has made Marilyn Monroe so legendary and why she's still an icon to this day. Also, I do want to issue a content warning here. There will be some mentions of sexual assault and drug use scattered within this episode. So if either of those are going to be particularly triggering for you, then I'll just see you in the next one. Anyway, with that being said, let's dive right in and talk about what Marilyn Monroe's early years were like. born on June 1st, 1926 in Los Angeles, California. She was originally named Norma Jean Mortensen, though she later baptized as Norma Jean Baker, having been given her mother's surname. When she was just two weeks old, her mother, Gladys Baker, brought her to the foster home of Ida and Wayne Bolander of Hawthorne, California. Though Norma's father wasn't in the picture, not officially anyway, her mother would insist for years that it was a Consolidated Studios coworker named Charles Stanley Gifford. Norma's grandmother, Della Hogan Monroe, was neighbors with Ida and Wayne Bolander, the foster parents. Norma's mother and grandmother were definitely involved with her life, but the relationship was tumultuous to say the very least. Gladys wanted to be close to Norma because she lost custody of her other two children, Jackie and Bernice. Yet her mother gave Norma up and struggled to be close with her because of her instability. For example, when Norma was just three years old, her mother tried to steal her daughter back by running off with her in a duffel bag. Della was so unstable, even almost killing her granddaughter when Norma was just a baby. One account from the book, The Secret Life of Marilyn Monroe claims that after recovering from being sick, Della hadn't seen Marilyn in some time. My source reads, after several weeks of recuperating, she decided it was time she saw her grandmother. So she stormed over to her neighbor's house and broke the door's glass and let herself in when Ida refused to let her in. Della told Ida she had heard that Norma Jean was dead and demanded to see her. So Ida led her to the baby's room. Ida went to get Della some water, and when she came back, found Della smothering baby Norma Jean with a pillow. A friend of Gladys said Ida grabbed the child. Della said that baby's pillow had slipped and that she was just readjusting it. The story became ingrained in the family lore surrounding Marilyn and the Bolanders, even Marilyn herself recounting it. After years though, when Norma was seven, Gladys was able to convince the Bolanders that she was stable enough to take care of her daughter alone. And things seemed all right for a while. Gladys got a loan for a new home and some boarders, George and Maude Atkinson, to provide some financial support and companionship. However, things turned south pretty quickly and Gladys learned that Jackie, 13 at the time, was taken from her as an infant and had died of kidney disease. Within weeks, she also had discovered that her grandfather had hanged himself and that her studio was going on strike. As an aside, many believe that George Atkinson may have sexually abused Norma when she was very young, though biographers disagree on whether or not this is true. I will touch on that in just a moment. But with so much going on at that moment, Gladys had a massive mental breakdown and the police were called. Gladys became institutionalized. She was diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia and Norma Jean became a ward of the state. 
Norma went to live with her mother's friend, Grace McKee, at first. It was Grace who told Norma that she should one day become a movie star. Grace let her wear makeup, took her to get her hair curled, and brought her to the movies, forming a basis for Norma's fascination with cinema. After a couple years though, McKee got married to Doc Goddard and could no longer care for her. Norma found herself at the LA Orphans Home Society and in an interview, remembered being devastated by that. I began to cry, please, please don't make me go inside. My mother's not deceased. I'm not an orphan. It's just that she's sick in the hospital and can't take care of me. Please don't make me live in an orphan's home. Grace Goddard returned for Norma after two years and attempted to include her in the family, but this failed. Norma stayed in touch with Grace though, even writing to her in later years. Others say that the reason behind this arrangement failing is sinister and well, a little bit criminal too. One source states, when Norma Jean was nine, McKee married Irvin Silman Doc Goddard in 1935 and subsequently sent Monroe to the Los Angeles Orphans Home, later named Holly Grove, following a succession of foster homes. While at Holly Grove, several families were interested in adopting her. However, reluctance on Gladys's part to sign adoption papers thwarted those attempts. In 1937, Monroe moved back into Grace and Doc Goddard's home, joining Doc's daughter from a previous marriage. Reportedly, due to Doc's frequent attempts to sexually assault Norma Jean, this arrangement did not last long. The thing is, although there are mentions of Marilyn Monroe being sexually abused when she was still a child named Norma, sources disagree about whether or not this was Doc or Atkinson. A lot of this also comes down to wording. While my previous source said that Grace spurred on that love of movies, her Wikipedia page states that she was sent to the movies to get her out of the house, implying it wasn't an activity they did together. So again, I don't want to confirm or deny that Doc or Atkinson abused young Norma as they gave her abuser a fake name when speaking about it. Marilyn Monroe didn't seem to want to put the name out there either. As for what happened next, the wording is also important and varied. One source claims, Finally, in 1942, when faced with yet another stint in an orphanage, Norma Jean married Jim Dougherty, a neighbor of the Goddard family where she was living at the time. The couple had been occasionally dating when it was discovered that Norma Jean's foster family were moving east and needed someone to care for their charge. Grace discussed the matter with Jim Dougherty's mother and together they approached the couple with the idea of marriage. For Jim, it was a chance to save her. He could be a knight in shining armor and he embraced the challenge wholeheartedly, though Norma Jean was conflicted. She wanted to be kept out of the orphanage, but marriage, it wasn't something that crossed her mind. It was like being retired to a zoo, she later said. While a different source writes, in 10th grade, Norma Jean was living with a family friend who tired of the responsibility, married her off to an eligible 20 year old living right next door named Jim Dougherty. Whether or not she was attracted to him or had the final word in the matter, Norma was only 16 years old when she married an adult four to five years older than her. I don't blame Norma in the slightest, seeing as she was a minor and may have seen this as her only escape from the foster system and a potential abuser. Things did change for Norma from this point onward, even though the difficulties didn't end there. James Doherty joined the Merchant Marines and was sent to the South Pacific during World War II. Norma was helping with the war effort as many women did at the time by working in a California munitions factory. It was routine at the time for photographers to tour the factory and shoot photos of female workers to boost morale. And in 1945, one of these photographers met and discovered Norma. At the time, Norma was 19 when David Conover recognized her potential as a pinup model. In January of that same year, she quit her job at the factory to model for him and his friends. She moved out of her in-laws home, defying everyone around her. Her in-laws, her husband, and her mother did not approve of her Hollywood lifestyle, but Norma went ahead and modeled anyway. As James didn't approve, they divorced in September, 1946. Other sources claim it was June, but either way, the two separated. 
Gladys Baker, her mother, was still a part of her life around this time, shortly before she signed with 20th Century Fox. According to one source, when Bernice came for an extended stay that summer, it again brought a period of relative familial happiness for Monroe. Still, Baker was obviously not well. She had taken to dressing like a nurse and was emotionally distant. When she did engage her daughter, it was often to express displeasure at her career choice of becoming an actress. In September, shortly after her daughter's divorce was finalized, Baker abruptly announced that she wanted to live with her aunt Dora in Oregon. Monroe soon learned that her mother never made it to Oregon and later discovered she had instead gotten hitched to a man named John Stewart Ellie, who had already another wife and family in Idaho. Even so, regardless of how things were with her mother, Norma was building an incredible life for herself. She dyed her hair blonde and called herself Marilyn Monroe using her grandmother's last name and finding the name Marilyn because of Ben Lyon, who helped discover her. And he said that she reminded him of Marilyn Miller. After a small part in 1947's The Shocking Miss Pilgrim, Marilyn had a string of plenty forgettable roles before landing a spot in John Huston's thriller, The Asphalt Jungle in 1950. She also drew attention for her work in All About Eve in 1953, when she played an adulterous young wife who plots to kill her husband in the thriller Niagara. Monroe had truly cemented her place in Hollywood around this time. She also starred in Gentlemen Prefer Blondes and How to Marry a Millionaire, that same list rocketing her name to Hollywood's A-list. Also, as a side note, even though I'm not one for diamonds myself, I honestly love the beginning of the song Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend in the movie Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. I think it's hilarious how she's singing no, no, no and smacking the men around in the face with fans. It's kind of hilarious. It's something I actually, funny enough, in college, I took uh, like a film class and Gentlemen for Fur Blondes was actually one of the movies we had to analyze. And I chose this as one of my final thesis papers. So I actually did dig into this movie and I really did enjoy a lot of just the isms inside it. It was fantastic. The undertone's fantastic and a fantastic piece to analyze as well. But anyway, um, it, it was a bit of a bumpy ride to the top, but even through the scandals, Marilyn held herself well and she finally made it. For example, in 1952, it was revealed that Marilyn had posed for a nude calendar several years prior to she was a star because, hey, she had bills to pay. According to one source, Journalist Aline Mosby broke the nude calendar story in March of 52. The studio's initial reaction was to deny everything. But Marilyn, to her credit, made the decision and convinced the studio to fess up and admit that it was indeed her in the photo. An exclusive interview was given on March 25th, 1952, and the scandal-hungry reporters sharpened their pencils, hoping, as reporters always do, for scandal, ridicule, and shame, not to mention the destruction of a hopeful young actress's career, which always sells well in the media. But instead of ridicule, the press were charmed by Marilyn's candidness and honesty. I was broke and needed the money, she said. Why deny it? You can get one, a calendar, any place. Besides, I'm not ashamed of it. I've done nothing wrong. I was a week behind in rent. She either had decided to change the real story here, perhaps implying she would have become homeless, which is more desperate and became more careless, or genuinely forgot about her fees. I had to have the money. Tom didn't think anyone would recognize me. My hair was so long then. But when the picture came out, everybody knew me. I'd never done it if I'd known things would happen so fast in Hollywood for me. Even Marilyn's natural sense of humor has come out in the aftermath of the Golden Dream scandal breaking. Later, reporters would harangue Marilyn and ask her if she had anything on during the infamous shoot. Oh yes, Marilyn quipped, I had the radio on. The press and the public saw Marilyn's sincerity and she weathered the scandal when few others at the time could have. Not only did she have their full attention from the films, but she also had the public's sympathy and trust because of her honesty. Marilyn's charm, friendliness, and her talent all contributed to her rise to fame. 
Another brief scandal in 1952 is when people learned that her mother was alive. Marilyn had been calling herself an orphan as the studio believed it would gain sympathy. Considering that she wasn't in touch at the time, it made sense. Even though Marilyn wasn't technically an orphan since her mother abandoned her, I can't entirely blame Marilyn for going along with this lie because again, her mother had left her when she was only two weeks old. They did visit on rare occasions after this and it's even said that Marilyn sent her mother an allowance. Still, they never seemed to be very close. It was in 1954 when things again took a turn for the worst. This year, Marilyn married and divorced the New York Yankee slugger, Joe DiMaggio. Apparently the two had met in 1952 when DiMaggio asked an acquaintance to arrange a dinner date with Monroe. And the moment the two started dating, the press was all over the story. Joe was a bit more private than Marilyn though, and he preferred to spend his evenings at home or sit in the back corner of restaurants. Allegedly, Marilyn was also the one who mentioned her wedding plans to someone at the studio, inadvertently leaking it to the press, meaning they were mobbed by reporters and fans on the day of their wedding, January 14th. Things only went more downhill from there. Honeymoon couple arrives at Tokyo airport. A throng of 4,000 baseball and movie fans surge out of control, break through police lines. Joe DiMaggio and his bride smile bravely at their greeters, but they don't dare move. But their troubles aren't over. Next day comes a press conference where the public was barred, but the photographers and reporters more than made up for that. Their questions were rough. One source states, while Monroe and DiMaggio were on their honeymoon in Japan, Monroe was asked to travel to Korea and perform for the American soldiers stationed there. She complied, leaving her unhappy new husband in Japan. After they returned to the United States, tension continued to build, particularly around DiMaggio's discomfort for his wife's sexy image. One memorable blow up occurred in September, 1954 on the New York City set of director Billy Wilder's The Seven Year Itch. As Monroe filled the now famous scene in which she stands over a subway grate with the air blowing up her skirt, the crowd of onlookers and press gathered. Wilder himself had reportedly arranged the media attention. As her skirt blew up again and again, the crowd cheered and DiMaggio who was on set became irate. Hearing this alone, you might think that they simply weren't a good match. Marilyn didn't seem to care as much about privacy as Joe, and he should have known that she wasn't going to simply change and become quieter, less showy person because they were now married. She was still Marilyn and nothing, not even Joe could change that. They divorced in October, 1954. The two did remain good friends, despite Marilyn accusing him of mental cruelty at the time. It's said that Joe never really got over Marilyn and even wanted to remarry her in later years. Though this source also claims that he was quite possessive of her, while another says that he was opinionated and controlling. Marilyn simply wasn't about to tone down who she was because it was what her husband wanted and ultimately they split. Unfortunately, this was far from the only tumultuous relationship she had at the time and there were others that treated Marilyn extremely poorly. According to one Vanity Fair article, Marilyn began taking private lessons with celebrated acting teacher Lee Strasberg in March, 1955. His studio was the most revered laboratory for stage actors in America, and its members included the most compelling actors of the day, Marlon Brando, James Dean, Julie Harris, Paul Newman, and many more. Strasberg became somewhat of a parental figure for Marilyn at the time. Not that Marilyn was lonely either. Marilyn was sleeping with a married man and director, Aaliyah Kazin, who at the time confessed to the affair to his wife and wrote, I met her on Harmon Jones's set. Harmon thought her a ridiculous person and was fashionably scornful of her. I found her when I was introduced in tears. I took her to dinner because she seemed like a touching pathetic wave. She sobbed all through dinner. I wasn't interested in her. That came later. I got to know her in time and introduced her to Arthur Miller, who was also very taken by her. 
You couldn't help but being touched. She was talented, funny, vulnerable, helpless, in awful pain with no hope and some worth and not a liar, not vicious, not catty, and with a history of orphanism that was killing to hear. She was like all Charlie Chaplin's heroes in one. I'm not ashamed at all, not a damn bit of having been attracted to her. She is nothing like what she appears to be now or even appears to have turned into now. She is not a big sex pot as advertised, at least not in my experience. I don't know if there are such as advertised big sex pots. She told me a lot about Joe DiMaggio and her, his Catholicism and his viciousness. He struck her often and beat her up several times. I'm not sorry about it. I love you and I only want to help you. I'm awful sorry I hurt you. I am human though. It might happen again. I hope not. And I have resisted quite some other opportunities. No loss. I got a lot out of this one. Can't say I didn't. I think I helped her. If you don't like what I say and feel it necessary for your own sense of honor to divorce me, divorce me. If DiMaggio really did beat Marilyn, then that is disgusting. She cited mental torment, as I mentioned earlier, but not being beaten. So I'm not sure who's telling the truth or who exactly the story is of, but the point is she did find a confident and cousin. I don't really condone cheating, obviously. I suppose at least he was brutally honest and told his wife, but you know, he still did it. Frankly, I hope his wife left him, but I suppose that's their business. Now we will get to Arthur Miller in just a moment, but another reason I bring up Kazin and this whole affair is because he's also quoted as saying that Monroe was his preferred victim devotee. One of the things that Strasburg asked of Marilyn for her was to see Dr. Margaret Hohenberg as many as five times a week, an acquaintance of his. Encouraging a friend to get help and have someone to talk to was one thing, but this turned out to be incredibly traumatic for Marilyn as she began remembering incidents of sexual abuse in her past. And even when Marilyn did find a different therapist years later that she felt safer with, it was only under Strasburg's approval. As the Washington Post states, Strasburg has been criticized not just for neglecting performance values like voice production and movement, on which Stanislavski placed increasing emphasis in his later years, but also for creating a cliquish, self-indulgent coitery that was dependent on his approval for their psychological health. Some say he preached a disdain for the crass commercialism of Hollywood because he was not sought after by major studios and that his attraction for stars outweighed his concern for unknown artists. Regardless of what you think of Strasburg, he was a member of the family to Marilyn and she even left the bulk of her estate to him when she passed. They were incredibly close in a way. He was the father she never had. Her own biological father told her, quote, look, I'm married and have a family. I don't have anything to say to you. Call my lawyer, end quote. So it's not hard to see why she would have wanted someone to fill that void. Aside from her coach and ex-husband though, Marilyn had another new man in her life, Arthur Miller. As I said, Cousin introduced the two of them and she fell head over heels in love with Miller. Though they met in 1950, they didn't really become close until 1955 when Marilyn forged a relationship with his friends, Norman and Hedda Roston. Though Miller was married, the two began sleeping together and just like with Cousin, the affair didn't remain a secret. In the spring of 1956, Miller began the process of divorcing his wife to be with Marilyn. And in late June that year, Marilyn and Miller were married. Right from the beginning though, things were messy. In recognizing a communist, physical appearance counts for nothing. If he openly declares himself to be a communist, we take his word for it. If a person consistently reads and advocates the views expressed in a communist publication, he may be a communist. The second Red Scare was in full swing after World War II, and Miller was one of those people accused of aiding communists. For those of you who don't know what the Red Scare is, I could honestly write an entire separate episode on it, but history.com defines it as this. 
Hysteria over the perceived threat posed by communists in the US during the Cold War between the Soviet Union and the United States, which intensified in the late 1940s and early 1950s. Communists were often referred to as Reds for their allegiance to the Red Soviet flag. The Red Scare led to a range of actions that had a profound and enduring effect on US government and society. Federal employees were analyzed to determine whether they were sufficiently loyal to the government and the House of Un-American Activities Committee, as well as US Senator Joseph R. McCarthy, investigated allegations of subversive elements in the government and the Hollywood film industry. The climate of fear and repression linked to the Red Scare finally began to ease in the late 1950s. At the time, Miller was seen as a possible Red. While he was living in the States, Nevada to be exact, Miller had submitted a passport application to accompany Marilyn to shoot a film in England. This raised red flags and apparently resulted in a subpoena to testify before the HUAC, or House Un-American Activities Committee, to testify about his ties to communism. An archived 1956 New York Times article reads, the 40-year-old dramatist, a Pulitzer Prize winner, told the House Committee of Un-American Activities that he had signed many appeals and protests issued by Red Front groups in the last decade, but he denied that he had ever been under communist discipline. He risked a possible contempt citation by refusing to give the committee names of those he had seen at communist-run meetings. In response to questions by Richard Aarons, committee counsel, the playwright testified that, in those days, referring principally to the late 1940s, I did sign a lot of things. He said he was not denying that he also joined in sponsoring many communist-backed causes. He said that in recent years, he had ceased issuing statements right and left, except where I personally was involved. I found that I was getting tangled up in too many things I didn't want to defend 100%, he said. Mr. Ahrens asked if Mr. Miller a series of questions concerning communist front activities. These included sponsorship of a World Youth Festival in Prague in 1947, a signature on a 1947 statement against the outlawing of the Communist Party a signature on a statement defending Gerhard Eisler before he fled this country to become a top communist official in East Germany, statements attacking the Committee on Un-American Activities, statements supporting relief work in Red China, and statements opposing the Smith Act. The Smith Act forbids teaching or advocating the overthrow of the United States government by force and violence. Mr. Miller said he had no memory of most of these things, but that he would not deny them. He said he was opposed to the Smith Act because he feared it might involve placing limitations on advocacy. He thought this would get smack in the middle of literature. Artists, he said, must have the right to express themselves freely. So sorry for the super lengthy quote here, but if you do wanna read the full article, it's obviously gonna be in my sources. The reason why I want to include this is to simply say that at the time, articles were not singing his praises. The Red Scare was a fearful time for many, so to be perceived as a threat or a communist back then was akin to being seen as a traitor. Marilyn was told to distance herself from her new husband when this word began to spread, but instead she remained loyal to Miller publicly as well as privately. Even though Miller was cited for contempt at the time, he did get his passport, the two were married and all seemed well. Vanity Fair also cited that they were probably the happiest in the summer of 1957, where they spent time in a rented house on Long Island, swimming and taking long walks on the beach. Marilyn looked radiant in photos from this time and she even wrote love poems about Miller. Though strangely, these poems seem to end with ominous lines about their love ending. Yet again, things weren't as happy as they appeared. Marilyn did the modern day equivalent of going through someone's text and looked at Miller's diary. Though in fairness to her, my sources say it was lying open on a table. In it, Miller had written he was disappointed in her and quote, feared that his own creativity would be threatened by this pitiful, dependent, unpredictable waif he had married and was seriously regretting the union, end quote. 
I get it, it was his diary and you can write anything you want in said diary, but seriously, isn't that the kind of way to repay someone that literally kept your reputation afloat when he was accused of being a communist, calling her a dependent waif? Marilyn built her career as an icon without his help. Marilyn claims that the diary also said, the only one I will ever love is my daughter in it, which was a blow that the marriage never really recovered from. Tragically throughout the years, Marilyn also had multiple miscarriages throughout the years and one ectopic pregnancy that ended in heartbreak. Between this and Miller claiming to be let down and embarrassed by Marilyn, the relationship wasn't meant to be. She had an affair with co-star Yves Morton on the set of Let's Make Love, an appropriate title for an affair, I suppose, and Miller didn't even object to the liaison. Instead, their marriage reached an end after five years and they announced plans to divorce in 1960. Around this time, Marilyn had also been abusing her prescription medication, the same kind of pills Judy Garland was on, barbiturates. According to PBS, on Marilyn's bedside table was a virtual pharmacopoeia of sedatives, sulforics, tranquilizers, opiates, speed pills, and sleeping pills. The vial containing the latter, a barbiturate known as Nembutol was empty. In her last weeks to months, Marilyn was also consuming, if not abusing, a great deal of other barbiturates, amphetamines, and a combination of barbiturates and amphetamines, and opiates, as a sedative, librium, and alcohol. She also imbibed a great deal of sherry. Her last two pictures, Let's Make Love 1960 and The Misfits 1961 were commercial flops. The latter written by her husband, the Pulitzer Prize winning playwright, Arthur Miller, served as the breaking point in their marriage and the two divorced shortly after wrapping that film. During this period, Monroe suffered from several mental health problems, including substance abuse, depression, and most likely bipolar disorder, along with physical ailments such as endometriitis and gallbladder disease. Sources claim that around this time, it was suspected Marilyn was having the same mental health issues as her mother. She did have similar erratic behaviors, but she never received an official diagnosis. Marilyn did stay at a psychiatric ward in New York Hospital Payne Whitney in 1960, but she said that she found the inhumanity there archaic. Marilyn claimed that she never had attempted to take her own life before this and that the ward was only going to do her more harm than good. Thankfully, her ex-husband Joe DiMaggio came to her aid and secured her release a few days later. I don't know if Joe's controlling attitude changed or if Marilyn reluctantly accepted his help. We can't know what he said to her in private, but he seemed to be a massive support system in her life in the early 60s. A different source claims that after DiMaggio secured her release, Marilyn did in fact receive that official diagnosis. And a doctor said she had borderline paranoid schizophrenia. So Marilyn may not have had this illness quite as seriously as her mother did, but she did seem to have it all the same. The source continues to say that, Monroe was a star with Dean Martin in a comedy, Something's Got to Give. A sinus infection kept Marilyn from making her first onset call, a bump that became a pattern. When she was not arriving late, she was having her driver cruise the lot. Once before going on camera, she vomited, which producer Henry Weinstein attributed to sheer primal terror. Something's schedule slid a week behind. Marilyn infuriated studio executives by leaving for you New York to sing happy birthday at Madison Square Garden on May 19th to President John F. Kennedy, a sometimes paramour. On June 1st, Monroe turned 36, a milestone marked rudimentarily on set with grocery store champagne, cake, and crew members singing happy birthday. That weekend found Marilyn in bed alone in the dark with her pills. Monday, she called in sick. By Wednesday, the studio had shut down Something's Got to Give and was suing an inconsolable Monroe for $500,000. It's ridiculous how quickly these studios will turn on actresses and actors the moment they become sick. And seriously, there's no sympathy anywhere. It's said that the studio said they didn't understand why she was well enough to sing happy birthday, but not work. And maybe it's because she wasn't sick that day. You don't get to pick and choose how you feel each day. 
Nevertheless, Monroe was not a reliable actress anymore. After this very public firing, she was harassed and alone and struggling to sleep. PBS wrote that she would often take capsules to help with that. And in the early hours of August 4th, Marilyn had 10 times the recommended amount of it in her system. Marilyn passed away from an overdose that was ruled a suicide. Many insist that this in fact was not a suicide, but an accidental overdose. And some say she wasn't showing any suicidal tendencies at the time as she was so forward looking. Regardless of if this was intentional or not, this was a real tragedy that affected many to have lost her so young when Marilyn was only 36 years old. It's even said that Joe DiMaggio sent roses to her grave every few days up until his own death decades later. And his last words were repeatedly how he would get to see Marilyn again. Her other ex-husband Miller didn't attend Marilyn's funeral. And that's because as he put it, she wouldn't be there. As a brief aside here, it's eerie foreshadowing that before she sang happy birthday, she was introduced as the late Marilyn Monroe. Though this was a crack at her lateness to film sets, it was only shortly before she died and it hits a little bit different when watching the footage back, especially hearing her introduced that way. Mr. President, the late Marilyn Monroe. Unfortunately, because of her fame, even after Marilyn passed away, the rumors continued to persist and conspiracies began to shroud her death. Some claim that on March 24th, 1962, Marilyn and JFK may have been in an affair as they were both at Bing Crosby's Palm Springs. One close friend of Marilyn's alleges that he heard JFK over the phone when he called Marilyn and he states, Marilyn told me that this night in March was the only time of her affair with JFK. A great many people thought after that weekend, there was not more to it. But Marilyn gave me the impression that it was not a major event for either of them. It happened once that weekend and that was that. The conspiracy that Marilyn Monroe was killed by JFK, the Kennedy brothers, or someone close to them seems pretty far-fetched, even if she did have an affair with JFK, which also has never been confirmed. Papers still talk about their secret affairs, questioning if she became pregnant by one of them as she looks like she had a baby bump in 1960. I'm not sure I believe this because, well, there just simply isn't the proof to back it up. Marilyn Monroe has been viewed as such a sex symbol that articles will still talk about her affairs and boyfriends, but she was so much more than that. One source states, assigned to 20th Century Fox, she had grown weary of dumb blonde roles and wanted to have more say in the scripts and roles handed to her. An actress isn't a machine, she once told Life Magazine writer Richard Merriman, but they treat you like one. She set up Marilyn Monroe Productions in 1955, becoming the second woman in the US after Mary Pickford to start her own production company. Pickford dubbed America's Sweetheart was a legendary silent film actor who founded United Artists and helped establish the Academy. Following much legal wrangling, Monroe and Fox struck a deal that saw her successfully negotiating for back pay, a higher salary, and a say in scripts, directors, and cinematographers. A rare victory for a female actor then. Her company produced The Prince and the Showgirl. In Wolves I Have Known, an article she authored for the January 1953 issue of Motion Picture and Television Magazine, she denounced the sexual harassment that ran rampant in Hollywood then. She described the men in the industry, the then 27-year-old Monroe wrote, There are many types of wolves. Some are sinister. Others are just good time Charlies trying to get something for nothing and others make a game of it. And this is about the same time she joined the actor's studio with the controversial leader, Lee Strasberg. Monroe had been laughed at when she initially started MMP, but soon enough, Time Magazine praised her as a shrewd businesswoman and the Los Angeles Mirror lauded her victory as one of the greatest single triumphs ever won by an actress. We're engaged. Wait, what? 
Engaged. Birch, I want you to meet Cherry. Now, wait a minute. Somebody's got the wrong idea around here. What do you mean, Cherry? She filmed Bus Stop, and in 1957, the majority of American films were produced independently. Other well-known stars like Frank Sinatra and Gary Cooper followed her lead, making their own small companies and buying scripts. Marilyn wanted respect, and when the studio she worked for treated her poorly, she just made her own production company instead. But she was also body positive and used her celebrity to lift others up. One fantastic example of this was when she publicly praised jazz singer Ella Fitzgerald. In the 50s, Ella was often hired for small venues, but nothing massive, as some places didn't want an overweight black woman as their talent, no matter how incredible Ella was. Marilyn Monroe became her friend and approached the owner at a famous LA nightclub, the Macombo, and said that if he booked Fitzgerald, she promised to sit at the front of house every night and bring other celebrities with her. Marilyn was true to her word and even brought Frank Sinatra and Judy Garland with her on an opening night. Fitzgerald sold out and her career really took off after that. Whether or not you enjoy her work as an actress, Marilyn Monroe was so much more than just a sex symbol. She was an icon, yes, but also a flawed human being that was intelligent, looking for love and determined. But with all of that being said, that's where I'm going to end today's episode of Prism of the Past. I hope you enjoyed this brief look into Marilyn Monroe's history. And if you did, make sure that you're liking, following, and subscribing so that you can stay up to date with all the latest episodes. And if you want more from me, including connecting with me outside of these episodes, make sure you go to my Linktree link. You'll see links for all of my social media and various projects that I'm also involved in. Again, thank you so much for making it to another episode. I appreciate you spending some time here with me today and I'll see you in the next one. Bye.